from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. We've come now to the end of the season of Lent. This is the last Sunday before Easter. And this is really the Sunday that begins what is commonly called Holy Week. And Holy Week is the time in which God's people set aside to remember the suffering of Jesus Christ, his bodily death, and his resurrection. And the, the, the time that we've come to now is, is a great moment of pressure and a great moment of tension in the story as we've been tracking through Luke's gospel as Jesus is intending to make his way towards Jerusalem. One of the emphases in this season of Lent that we've been looking at is that Jesus did not avoid going to the place of his death, but rather he intended to. Luke emphasizes, capturing Jesus' words, that when Herod uh, comes and, and the Pharisees send Herod's words to Jesus that Herod's coming to kill him, Jesus responds, you go tell that fox, I'm not going to be dissuaded from my journey. I'm performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day... I will accomplish my course. We've come now to this moment where it's really between the second and third day, if you will, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. We call this day Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, this scene that Jesus uh, inten intends to, to identify himself as, as the Messiah but the question has to be asked, how can we call this a triumphal entry, knowing Jesus' heart? Remember, what we've been looking at is Luke has been recording, Jesus knows he will die, and therefore he's going. As he comes into Jerusalem, the question has to be asked, how can this be triumphal? How come they are praising God if we know what's about to take place? 
Luke's gospel is intended to show us the clarity which Jesus Christ has of his own heart and mission. The, The problem that this answers for us is that unless we see that Jesus knowingly goes to his death, we might be tempted to think that Jesus' death is some sort of tragedy. We might read this story before we come to the resurrection and think he's on the hero's journey and he makes it to the final destination and he fails. He's murdered. It's a cosmic joke unless we know that Jesus knows what he's doing. This is the beauty of seeing the Messiah in his own understanding of what it will be required to purchase his people. Knowing that Jesus knew fully well what he was doing helps us to see the depth of his love. He did not go to the cross and wonder what would happen to him. He knew and probably had seen crucifixions. They were common in his day. He had witnessed. He knew what the scriptures told of him. He went for your sake anyway. That is the gospel. That is an aspect of the gospel which cannot be diminished. Your Savior knew what it would cost to purchase your life. And therefore, because we are seen by the more, we see the moral beauty, the excellence of his character, the resolve to do his Father's will, though it cost him his life, we are transformed by seeing this glory. Paul says, We, beholding through a veil, behold the glory of the Lord. And we ourselves are being transformed from glory into glory. If you don't see your life marked by the sort of sacrifice that Jesus did for his people, take a look again at the glory of the Lord. Look long through this veil that we have of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. Look upon the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I want to emphasize three aspects of this story that that Luke faithfully records this historical narrative as he emphasizes the role of Christ as he's coming into Jerusalem. First, I want to look at the, the prophecy or the role of Christ as the great prophet who was coming into the world as he intends to use this cult, not only prophesying about the cult, but as we'll see in a minute, prophesying with the cult. Uh, by cult, I don't mean C-U-L-T for those of you who cannot distinguish my uh, pronunciation, but a colt, uh, maybe that was better, the C-O-L-T, a donkey's foal or, or a, um, an animal that often is translated as a donkey. Christ then proceeds into Jerusalem as a king who has triumphed, having conquered in the land, coming back into the city to receive the praise of the people. But actually, there's an ironic twist to this scene because Jesus has not only conquered in the land, he's coming into Jerusalem, but he won't be received by Jerusalem, actually. And there's a great reason for this, is because he's going to be pushed out of Jerusalem and rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. And instead of conquering in the land, then entering the city, he's actually now entering the city only to go be defeated, as it were, in the land. And that really is where we see Christ here in this passage as the priest. He is not only prophet and king in this passage. He, because he knows what he's doing, is priest. He is the lamb who offers up his own blood for the sake of the people. And therefore, as Christians, as those who follow Christ, we ought to follow his example. 
As Christ moves towards Jerusalem, he shows himself in this passage as being the true prophet of which Moses spoke. If you remember, during the time when Jesus accomplished the feeding of the 5,000, the people in the book of John are recorded as saying, truly, this is the great prophet who was to come into the world. And they're referring to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is identifying that that he is not the final prophet to Israel. He's not the real prophet who will bring Israel into the true promised land. And Moses, being a prophet, prophesies of a prophet to come. Throughout our time in Epiphany, both at the baptism of Christ and at the transfiguration of Christ, we hear from heaven, this is my beloved son, and later, listen to him. Moses said it is to all of those who do not listen to this prophet, that the Lord will require their souls of them. Jesus, therefore, being the great prophet, shows himself as the great prophet through a marvelous, stunning prophecy in this passage. In verse 28, it says, And when he had said these things, describing the parable of the minas, which we won't cover today, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, now notice clearly, he sent two of the disciples, two or three witnesses, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Jesus' prophecy, as he records, uh, as Luke records, rather, of finding this cult is stunningly clear. Jesus matches, through his prophecy, the stunning clarity of the details of the prophecy, of the prophecy with the extreme or supreme beauty of his meaning in this prophecy. What I mean to say is that Jesus did something with perfect clarity, describing in exquisite detail the events as they were to yet unfold, and that beauty of his perfection of his knowledge as the true prophet matches perfectly, intentionally, the beauty of what he means with this miracle that he's doing. Without traveling to this village beforehand, Jesus knew with certainty that the cult would indeed be in the proper location, that it would be tied, and that it has never been ridden. When we see Jesus calling his disciples, there's one, Nathaniel, and he says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel, in understanding this, says, You're the Son of God, you're the Christ. The reason Nathanael does this is because he recognizes Jesus knowing that he was under the fig tree, he sees more than the fig tree. He saw more than just seeing me physically under, he knows who I am. Nathanael was aided by the Spirit to see the the prophecy of Jesus as revealing the nature of Jesus. Jesus not only knows that the cult will be there in a particular location, that it will be tied and it has never been ridden, Further, he knew that its owners would reject to the disciples' commandeering. Commandeering is when, for example, a police officer chasing a a thief on the run might stop you and say, I need your car, and he shows a badge, and he shows his gun. 
and the uniform tells you you're getting out of the car and you're giving it to him. That's what commandeering means. Not only did Jesus know that the owners would object to the commandeering of this donkey, their property, but he knew that it would be not only seen potentially as borrowing something that they didn't really have right to claim, but it would have been extremely perplexing. Why would you come get a colt that has not been broken? You can't ride a colt that hasn't been broken. Jesus not only knew that they would object, but he knew what to command his disciples to say. Jesus knew that the colt's owners would give in when his disciples repeated the words, the Lord has need of this. He didn't tell them to take money to buy the colt or to further command them, but rather he knew that the disciples repeating his words would have the intended effect. Brothers and sisters, this is a small glimpse of Christ's doctrine of the scriptures, isn't it? He knew that when they repeat the commands, this colt who is tied will be unleashed. Oh, I wish we had time and, and the, the in, intuition to read the scriptures as our early church fathers. They would have gone straight to liberating the cult. That, that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's not just using it. He's bringing deliverance in a sense. He's using the cult who cannot be ridden as a picture of his power to transform wicked sinners. He's able to tame this cult and to release it from its bonds. In this, we see a glimpse of the authority of his word and the power of his transformation as Jesus is releasing this animal and using it for a specific purpose. Jesus knows that his words will succeed. In verse 32, Luke writes, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said to them, The Lord has need of it. As his words are perfectly fulfilled, once again we see Jesus Christ as the true prophet who was to come into the world. But the question we have to ask is, why did Jesus say to them, the Lord has need of it? He has need of this cult. Jesus doesn't want to use a different animal. He doesn't want a horse. He doesn't want a camel. He doesn't even want a donkey, as it were. He wants a cult. By using this sign of the cult, Jesus is intentionally reminding the people of Israel of God's promises to her through the mouth of Zechariah. Last year, we were extremely focused on Psalm 118, and we didn't have the time to look at Zechariah 9, which we will look at today. In Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Zechariah prophesies, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Israel, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, Yahweh prophesies, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What the Lord Jesus is doing as he is seated upon the cult is he is testifying of his own kingship. So in prophesying, he's revealed as the great prophet, not only in telling the details of the cult, 
but using the cult to remind God's people of God's word. Prophets in the scriptures do not just foretell, they retell. And now Jesus, as he uses this prophecy of himself, written ages before his birth, he then sits upon the cult and testifies clearly that he is the king. Verse 35, and they, the disciples, brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks over the cult, they set Jesus on it. Whenever a king is coronated, he's set on a throne. That's why Luke said they set Jesus on it. Verse 36 says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus here is revealing himself as the righteous king who's going to bring salvation and deliverance with him. Zechariah said, this is your king coming to you, O daughter of Zion. Your king is righteous and having salvation with him and bringing deliverance to the people. As Zechariah prophesied, though Jesus is riding on a colt, he comes to cut off the chariots of war and the war horses that oppress God's people. A few years ago, I think it might have only been a year ago, while we were singing a great Easter song that we sing every year, uh, uh, forever, the, the end bridge of that song, the Lamb has overcome. And I was so overcome myself with the folly of that sentence because lambs can't attack anything. This is, this is what Zechariah is saying. He's using the same idea in his prophecy. Zechariah is saying there's going to be a king coming in on a cult and he's going to cut off the chariots. For those of you who've never seen a cult, if you were at, I forget whose birthday party it was, the Burks brought their little miniature pony, uh, miniature horse, excuse me. Uh, is it a miniature horse? Thank, I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, imagine getting on that pony to ride against a war horse. If you've ever seen the Anheuser-Busch, uh, those horses as they bring in the beer, the, these Clydesdale horses that are thou probably thousands of pounds in the thousands of pound ranges, the folly of sending in a donkey against a chariot is stunning. And that's what Zechariah is saying is going to take place. Rejoice, Zion. You're going to be delivered with a 22. <laughs> it's, it's ironic. It's ironic because it's saying what the Lord Jesus, who he's going to be. He's coming in kind of like a Trojan horse. If Jerusalem knew what was happening, they would have shut the gates they didn't recognize this humble king who comes to pour out his own blood and lay his life down for the sake of his people. They were beguiled by his humility as he enters in on this cult. Verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. He has indeed conquered in the land and he's coming into the city victorious, but he will not be received by this city. Nevertheless, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118. And then they say, not quoting Psalm 18, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. His disciples recognize at least some of the significance of what's taking place. As I said, they quote Psalm 18, in which the Messiah, the Christ, enters into the midst of God's people in temple worship. 
If you were here with us last year, we spent most of our time looking at that psalm. It's a psalm of ascent, but it's also an antiphonal psalm, a psalm that's read back and forth, and different characters in the psalm are speaking to one another. And the Messiah says, open up to me the gates, as we sang this morning, and the gates are indeed open, and the people do indeed welcome him. And therefore, from the city of Jerusalem, God's people shout out in Psalm 118, 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord as he is triumphing into or processing into the midst of God's people. Though the disciples know what they are saying, their proclamation is extremely striking because they don't quote the next verse, but say something different. They declare peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the context of Luke's gospel, this is extremely reminiscent of the witness of the angels when the angels were testifying to the shepherds, isn't it? What did they say in Luke 2, 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among with those whom he is pleased And extremely outraged, the Pharisees demand that Jesus then silence their worship. The Pharisees recognize, they know Psalm 118. They recognize that they are declaring the Messiah, the true King of Jerusalem, that these disciples are declaring the King has come. But the Pharisees want to only recognize Him as a teacher. They try to hold back the people and they call Jesus, not king, but teacher, a colleague, if you will, with whom they just have an academic dispute. They say to him in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus's response here is telling us of this dramatic significance of this moment. This entire scene is so pregnant with meaning That everything taking place at this time is shouting about the work that Christ comes to do. Jesus is saying, "You, you can't undo what's begun here. It's too late. I'm testifying of myself that I am prophet, priest, and king, entering into the holy city to offer up my blood. Though Jesus' disciples understood his entrance as the Messiah, they doubtless did not understand fully why he was to come. Why do we know this? Because the disciples, as soon as he's arrested, they flee. They didn't recognize the full extent of who Jesus was, what he had come to do, and what the prophecies had said of him long ago. However, Jesus knows what is going to take place in these next few days. The very next line in this psalm, which the disciples quoted but then never moved to, foretells the death of this lamb, which is going to happen in the Passover, about to be celebrated. This hymn, Psalm 118, it would have been often used as a Passover hymn. If you remember, in the last few weeks, Andy has been taking us in the communion meditation to, over and over again, these psalms that the Lord Jesus would have used with his disciples and growing up and would have meditated on and would have seen himself testified about. In Psalm 118, 27, the very next verse after they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The psalmist wrote, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords 
up to the horns of the altar. Even our table in communion, it's no coincidence that this table has four corners. It's kind of a reminder of what this psalm is talking about, that in the temple, the ark or the the horns of the altar were a four-cornered thing. And God, long ago through the forming of the tabernacle, testified beforehand about the four corners of the cross of Jesus Christ. As he is now rejected by the elders, scribes, and Pharisees, Jesus will be revealed as the Passover lamb. We see him as prophet and king and priest, but not only a priest who offers up a sacrifice, here is a priest who is going to offer up his own blood for the people's deliverance. As John the baptizer had prophesied at the beginning Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And though Jesus dies at their hands, he is going to offer up his own blood because he brought himself to be the atonement as he's bound to the four-cornered cross. This is how, alone, Jesus has brought about peace in heaven and glory to God. That's what they were saying, It wasn't it? that as he's coming in and proceeding into the city, that they're declaring, now because he's entering, there's going to be peace with heaven once again because the festal lamb will be tied to the horns of the altar. In seeing the beauty of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, we who trust upon him are to be like the virgins in Revelation, following the lamb wherever he goes. In seeing how Jesus fulfilled Scripture, we recognize the greatness of His resolve and His purity in His love for us. Jesus knew completely what it would take to atone for the sins of His people, and yet He purchased us anyways. One of the aspects that I always call to mind in the season of Lent is that Lent, the, the, the pyramids that we use being purple are actually not only just a picture of a royal color, But it is very reminiscent, isn't it, of a white garment stained with blood. That is what these, in a subconscious, even at a subconscious level, are trying to say. That's what we're using them to to remind ourselves about. Jesus knew that he was going to pour out his own blood on the ark of God. He knew that he would atone for the sins of the, the people. As we sang this morning, he washed us. In his cleansing flow, the job of the priest is not just to offer up a sacrifice, but he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the ark, and he also sprinkles it on the people. He doesn't just offer up a sacrifice to Yahweh alone privately as if it could be done in secret. No, then as priest, the priest applies the blood to God's people. Therefore, his love perfectly admonishes us to abstain from sin. We've been washed, brothers and sisters, from the sins which defiled us. And we've been set apart, therefore, to a holy use. Just as the things in the temple are sanctified with blood, we, God's people, have now been washed in Christ's blood, and we have been set apart to be used for holy service. The writer of Hebrews, understanding this in chapter 12, says, Therefore, since we... We Christians are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, just as Christ entered with joy into Jerusalem to purchase his people, we too follow this lamb wherever he goes and how he goes. We who are transformed by Christ's love now can joyfully lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, making disciples, teaching them of the gospel and and God's word. As we look to him, therefore, we not only resolve to abstain from sin, that's one aspect of our Christian walk, but by being transformed by his love, we then are used by him to love others. In Hebrews 13, 12 through 13, the, the writer of the Hebrews closes a major section of his letter saying that Jesus suffered outside the gate. Remember, he's triumphed, he's come into the city, he's rejected and expelled from the city as they take him to the cross. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And the call is this, therefore let us go outside, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. One of the common themes of this conference that we just celebrated the last few days at the Table Fellowship was that Christians increasingly in our culture today must be willing to lose their possessions, their careers, and their money. But the most precious thing we, you and I, will be called to lay down is our reputation in the eyes of a godless culture, which is throwing off the Lamb's restraints. You must be willing, brothers and sisters, to look upon Christ, see the joy with which he laid down his life, and notice how he bore your shame, because you will be shamed for following Jesus Christ. If you follow Jesus Christ, count the cost. You may have to lay down your reputation. There will come a day when you will have to stand And unless you have looked upon the Lord and seen the beauty of his love as he knowingly poured out his blood for you and took your shame as he bore it naked on a tree, nailed to a tree as a murderer and criminal, you will not be prepared to lay down your reputation and to bear the shame of a culture who despises God's laws and his ways. Brothers and sisters, Let us go outside of the gate. Let's go to him and bear the reproach that he endured. Even therefore, as we celebrate Christ's victorious death and resurrection on our behalf, let's go to him outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured. We who claim the name of Christ are to be like him in all things. Even as he was the lamb, we are supposed to imitate his love being little lambs. In Revelation 12, 11, it says of the martyrs who gave their lives, it says, they have conquered, they have conquered him, <clears throat> excuse me, they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. God's grace is an amazing thing, even as he draws us to his son and and makes us new, He constantly is renewing us and transforming us. If you feel like you're at this place where you wouldn't be able to love your life even unto death, it does not mean that Christ has not claimed you as one of His lambs. 
He's not finished with you yet, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, it would be loving of the Lord to tell you where you're going. You might not be able to bear these things now, but he is faithful and he can bring you to this place. Therefore, as we come to the table this morning, as Zechariah prophecy continues, this truly is a feast worth celebrating. Yes, it is sorrowful, but brothers and sisters, it is also filled with extreme joy because God has saved his people. At the end of that passage in Zechariah 9, in which the king is coming to them on a donkey, it says in verse 16, on that day, the Lord will save them as the flock of the people. They're all supposed to be little lambs. They're a flock. For they are like the jewels of a crown. The Lord Jesus considers you the jewels of his crown. They will shine in the land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is what he's brought us to, isn't it? He's brought us into a festal sacrifice in which we can partake in the sufferings, but it is a joyful partaking. It is one filled with thanksgiving because we've been brought to new life and we've been brought and transformed to live as Jesus lived. So my call to you this morning is as you come to eat with him, let's praise God for cleansing wicked sinners to become faithful people who lay down their lives for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we know that if your spirit does not come down and make us alive and cause your word to gain entry into our hearts and and to transform us, we could never do what your son has done. And Lord, unless we are enabled by your word and sustained with bread and wine, we could never steal our souls to withstand the suffering that is coming to those who claim Christ. We pray, therefore, that you would send your spirit upon us, that you would fully transform us, that you would help us to count our lives as not precious so that we would lay them down for the sake of others every day in how we serve our brothers and sisters and perhaps on a particular day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.